taking history to the streets, how $100 and a lot of sweat equity helped to connect neighbors to each other and their town. Good morning, everyone. I'm Kathy Zussi, all the way from Cambridge, Massachusetts, where this very week, uh, signs from If This House Could Talk 2012 grace the neighborhood. And I want to thank you for coming to this incredibly early session. I hope you're enjoying the conference and that you had at least some coffee to help wake you up. Uh, today I'll be sharing what If This House Could Talk is and, and requires, how the idea came about, how we did it, what it looks like, and how it's changed and grown. I'll also present a five-minute history of Cambridgeport to provide context. Taking History to the Streets was prepared by my friend and colleague Michael Schaefer, a multimedia producer and writer who also worked with me in Cambridge last year to produce five theatrical living history monologues. Mary Ellen Burns, here on the left in this picture, was to be here with me, uh, but she and her husband have taken ill, so I'll be presenting for her. She dismounted If This House Could Talk in Sacramento, California, and I'm pleased to report that Calgary, Alberta, also had their own this past summer with 500 participants. If This House Could Talk is great fun, as well as a very effective way of bringing people together and giving them a renewed sense of place. Please realize that If This House Could, not, could Talk is not just about houses, but also parks, businesses, roads, and even street corners. They have stories to share, too. Before I tell you about the project, let me tell you about me and how this whole thing happened. I began my career in 1974 when I was 16. In 10th grade, I got a job interning at the National Museum of Air and Space when it was still situated in a Quonset hut. One day, all the interns met with astronaut Michael Collins, the new director, who told us some wonderful stories of his flight on Apollo 11, as well as writing Einstein's theory of relativity on a napkin that I still have. I think that summer might have sealed my own trajectory. In college, I returned to the Smithsonian as an intern and worked on Edison Lighting a Revolution, which I'm pleased to report is still running today at the National Museum of American History. After graduating from Cooperstown in 1983, I began my career with stints at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, the Bennington Museum in Vermont, and then at the Museum of New Hampshire History. I moved to Cambridge about 20 years ago, where I started an exhibition company and organized my Amish friends, The Bicycle Takes Off, and Faithful Boston, among other projects. So it's not too surprising that in 2009, when I was invited to a neighborhood meeting, brainstorming about ways to bring our community's history to life, that I came up with the idea of turning our neighborhood into an exhibition. So when that idea popped up, uh, one of my colleagues, Ross Miller, a noted public artist, or perhaps it was city councilor, our now mayor, Henrietta Davis, that came up with the name, If This House Could Talk. Ross quickly drew a logo, designed all the graphics, and helped shape the project that was to become a key component of a larger event called Cambridgeport History Day. Two other important partners were Kit Rollins from our wonderful Cambridge Historical Commission and Gavin Clespies of our local historical society. 
Kip provided historical materials to sign writers, and Gavin hosted our information on his website and made sign location maps that guided people through the neighborhood. And here we all are, in front of my house, which is in a wonderfully diverse and rapidly changing part of Cambridge called Cambridgeport, the very neighborhood I will be focusing on today. Cambridgeport is a densely packed, mixed-income and mixed-use neighborhood in Cambridge, Mass., about a half square mile in size, and is located between proud old Harvard University and the rapidly expanding Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Funky old Central Square, our downtown, and the not-so-mighty but still very scenic Charles River. Cambridgeport got its name when, very early in our history, land developers aspired to earn great fortunes by transforming it into a major port connected to Boston Harbor by the Charles River, which was really a tidal basin. This dream quickly evaporated with the Embargo Act of 1807, when New England ports were mostly closed to foreign trade. The only vestige of any great mercantile activity was preserved in the community's established but highly misleading suffix. In the 19th and 20th century, Cambridgeport became a significant manufacturing center whose major industries were soap making, commercial baking, home of the original, you get it, Uh, thank you Michael, Uh, book printing, railroad manufacturing, and wire and cable production. In fact, the first transatlantic cable was produced by Simplex in Cambridgeport. And oh yes, if you lived in New England, there's a good chance that your great-grandfather's Model T was assembled at the Ford Assembly Plant, which Henry Ford built in 1916. Cambridgeport was frankly never a fancy neighborhood. It was home to merchants who shopped, filled both sides of Mass Avenue, our main thoroughfare, in the increasingly busy commercial center of town, Central Square. It was filled with skilled craftsmen and tradesmen who worked in the area, and a good number of immigrant factory workers from Canada, Ireland, and Europe. So the housing stock in the neighborhood was largely modest, densely packed, single-family homes, boarding houses, triple-deckers, townhouses, early apartment buildings, and an occasional occasional mansion or two for local bigwigs. Today, Cambridgeport is a community of 12,000 people, about 11% of the total Cambridge population. Partly because of our project and the increase in new residents, we are steadily developing a stronger identity as a distinct and cohesive neighborhood. Cambridgeport includes many public housing developments, including Woodrow Wilson Court, built in 1949, the very first state-funded housing project for World War II vets in Massachusetts, and two towers for the elderly and disabled in mixed-income housing. Because of our ethnic diversity, it also became the home to more than 10 churches serving every ethnic group in town. Because of some well-publicized controversies and financial reversals, our large Catholic church that once drew largely working-class Irish worshipers is today ironically being transformed into luxury condominiums. Our large 
Uh, okay, whoops. And speaking of luxury, I must report to you that since 1995, when rent control was abolished, our little community has, has furiously gentrified. Today, I'm sad to say that much of our aptly named People's Republic of Cambridge has largely been reduced to a vivid memory for many of us and a slightly worn watering hole where dispossessed radicals and hippies can reminisce about their glory days of protest and overcoming during the 60s and 70s. The other major transformation in our community has been the conversion or replacement of our old industrial buildings and abandoned lots with a slew of modern, often MIT-connected, innovative high-tech and biotech startups and established corporations. Highly skilled technologists to eat well. So now we also have a new wave of fancy eateries side by side with the funky vestiges of old Central Square, as well as a new hotel catering to the growing international clientele of our high-tech clan. Of course, even with these world-class corporations filling our old factory lots, one small persistent hanger-on from our less prosperous past has remained a constant in the neighborhood. Just two blocks up my street is the, is the original MIT startup, the surprisingly funky, nationally famous garage owned by Click and Clack, our down-home MIT-educated, well, at least one of them, car mechanics Tom and Ray Maliozzi. Despite their NPR car talk fame and fortune, you can still frequently find Ray, greasy hands and all, actually under an old sob or behind the counter. And now to show you how If This House Could Talk reflects and presents this history sign by sign and to tell you how this project came about. In 2009, a very ad hoc group comprised of brilliant and respected representatives from city government, history, art, and neighborhood organizations, and a few creative types met in our beautiful Cambridge City Hall and decided to create a day celebrating Cambridgeport history. After numerous long and contentious meetings, the committee agreed to call it Cambridgeport History Day. And each year, our publicity and programs have become a little bit livelier. I felt that to succeed, we needed to more actively engage our neighbors. Thus, If This House Could Talk was born. The idea was for people living in the community, as well as for local businesses, to research and post handwritten signs in front of their property, sharing some interesting story about individuals or events that took place there. The signs would pop up suddenly one autumn morning and remain in place for nine days. From the beginning, we thought of this as a history-based public art project in which we would provide the essential materials and the participants would write the story. We provided links to important resources in town, such as at the Historical Commission and web-based resources. Uh, we are very lucky in Cambridge um, because a Harvard librarian spent two years putting Cambridge's property records online. So you can really do a lot of the research right online. Born out of the recession of 2009, another vision for the project was to make it not low cost, but no cost, so that everyone could join in. All we needed were the essentials. 
plus, of course, hundreds of hours of volunteer time to manage the project, to encourage participation, assist sign writers, map sign locations, and later to gather sign text for the historic record. Most importantly, we needed inspired sign writers. To encourage them, we published notices in the local newspaper, posted to our local listserv, and put paper kiosks and announcements all around the neighborhood. We even organized a few exhibits of best signs in a favorite ice cream parlor and coffee house to get people intrigued. Simple guidelines that many of you have now, they were at the back table, told interested parties what to do and when, where to pick up materials, and provided resources for researching buildings. Most importantly, they also illustrated model signs. A picture can tell a thousand words. Our best advertisement, however, were the teaser signs we placed at busy crossroads two weeks before the event. The insert in the lower right-hand corner described the project and told how to join in. So, how did it all work out? People loved it. We went from 70 signs in 2009 to 120 in 2011. This, in fact, is a sign location map that we gave to people at our If This House Could Talk booth on History Day. On the back is a listing of signs by street name. And I think you all have a copy of that as well. Suddenly, our streets were filled with interesting and imaginative signs and with people wandering about, learning and laughing at what neighbors had written. More importantly, they were connecting with and getting to know each other. At the end of the nine days, many people didn't want to remove their signs because they were so proud of them. In fact, one day, a total stranger stopped his car in the middle of the street to exclaim to me, I love this project. You know, I think one reason that people are so enthused about it is because it's an opportunity for self-expression and to discover history in one's own backyard. It's been, as our artist friend Ross Miller once described it, a sort of physical YouTube. This sign marks romantic poet and artist Washington Alston's studio. He lived in Cambridgeport for 25 years. In fact, once people have participated, they continue to either post their original sign each year, append the original with additional materials, which I've come to call totem pole signs, or they create a completely different sign with a completely different story. So what do people write about? Many write about the history of their home, when it was built, and who built it. Some write about the architecture, including major and minor changes to the building over the decades. Others write about interesting local characters who have lived there. Some signs reveal tidbits about the people and pets currently living in the house. Others focus on the gardens and trees. 
Some even focus on the wildlife with whom we share the neighborhood. And then, of course, we even had a renegade sign about our renegade chickens. As people continue to fight the 2010 ordinance outlawing chicken raising in our backyards. Some of the best signs are one-liners. Others, created by local overachievers, <laughs> are encyclopedic and, frankly, a bit pedantic. We've got signs describing geology, demographics, and sociology, as well as local history. My favorites are those that are graphic and include drawings, copies of old photos, newspapers, or maps, or that tell a story. Remember, the best signs don't tell everything. They leave you wanting more. In addition to the home signs, retail stores, gas stations, small businesses, nonprofits, and corporations have joined in, and more put up signs each year. This is a spectacular shelf sign, one of few that continue to exist. And here we've got our first biotech sign. Um, I was really thrilled because they called me and said they wanted to participate. This is where my son gets pizza about twice a week. And I um, worked with, uh, with Teddy, who runs the place. And I don't know if you can read it, but it says, it would tell you that the owners traveled many thousands of miles from a country called Greece to start a business and live the American dream. Our best dishes are delicious pizza and fresh-baked haddock. Fresh seafood is delivered from George's Bank off the coast of uh, Nova Scotia three times a week. Now, I, my son has eaten there, and I've eaten there for about 15 years, and I never knew that story. Finally, in order to fill out the history of the neighborhood, we've created a category we call curated signs, often written by history professionals that tell the little-known stories of some of our parks and schools, apartment buildings, streets, memorial squares. In Cambridge, we have all these squares that are actually street corners um, that remember young men that have died in various wars to, for, to preserve freedom. In public art projects, this mural, um, neighbors that joined together to fight the inner belt, there was going to be a superhighway put through our neighborhood, and the neighbors stopped it. Signs uh, also tell about once vital and now lost local businesses like Polaroid, yes, founded and headquartered in Cambridge, and even a bicycle racing track from the beginning of the 20th century. A new component of the project are signs that are excerpts from oral history interviews with elderly longtime residents about their childhoods and how the community has changed. Here's our neighborhood treasure, Bill Davis, a Cambridgeport lifer, who shared memories and helped us write signs about World War II and our factory days. One of our most profitable early industries was soap making, which in addition to producing many perfumed scented products, 
require, required rendering a steady supply of carcasses of all sorts while exuding stinky vapors into the atmosphere, earning it the title of Greasy Village. Not only were the odors unsavory, but apparently so were some of the neighbors. We learned from other elderly residents that this was the home to numerous tough Irish gangs. While we obviously haven't solved the graphic design issues with these signs, they point the way to using more oral histories in our project. One of the goals has been to expand the project to everyone, including new immigrants, people of every economic level, and even transient college, college students who make up a sizable percentage of our population. Here, for example, is Maito Auger, who came to Cambridge from Bogota, Colombia in 1970. To capture her story, I sat with her for about an hour, listening and helping her to shape her tale. Giving voice to those who are often left out requires an investment of time and energy and a personal connection. We hope in the future to incorporate photographs of storytellers and images that illustrate their recollections. My hope is to get elementary school students and their teachers involved. And I actually think this is really the only way to broaden the scope of the project so that it involves everybody. Well, if this house could talk is ephemeral on our streets, we post a permanent record of all submitted sign text to the Cambridge Historical Society website, and you can find it there today. Each year, a few potential sign writers visit the page seeking inspiration. Some are motivated to be more careful and accurate about what they write, knowing that their efforts will be well-preserved. Our project has grown and changed over the years. We debuted If This House Could Talk in History Day and costumed um, historical... In 2009, we debuted If This House Could Talk in History Day and costumed historical reenactors depicted the local Revolutionary War militia who set up cannons along the Charles River to fend off the British. In 2010, just before the event, we mounted an exhibit at, of our best signs at a local ice cream parlor as inspiration. We also built an If This House Could Talk booth designed and built by local artisans in the neighborhood. Um, I, oops. I don't know if um, any of you know Mitch Ryerson, but he has furniture in many like, major art museums all over the country, and he built this If This House Could Talk booth for us, and he continues to help us put it up and take it down every year. Uh, um, and this is in our central Dana Park, where most of the History Day events take place. In wanting to embrace a larger socioeconomic spectrum of sign writers, we invited residents of our local public housing projects to participate in 2010, and they did. And there was even actually sort of a, like a little rivalry between the residents of LBJ Apartments and Woodrow Wilson Court. There were like 10 to 12 signs from LBJ Apartments and about five from Woodrow Wilson Court. So I felt like that was a good start. That same year, we invited school children and local artists to submit personal net maps of the neighborhood. We had about 40 submissions, and we then had a well-attended exhibit of them at our wonderful neighborhood art gallery. In 2011, we got more organized. I recruited a committee of volunteers to write curated signs and to recruit others by word of mouth as well as social media. 
Even MIT joined our effort, posting a few signs on a few of their historic buildings. That same year, I was speaking with my friend Michael Schaefer about wanting to add a new and exciting element to History Day. And he suggested the idea of creating living history vignettes, depicting different Cambridgeport moments, ideas, and characters, and then placing them in historically appropriate spots. I thought this um, would be a great way to bring history to life. We auditioned lots of talented actors, and we selected a terrific cast to play our five roles. We won grants from Mass Humanities and a local bank and established fruitful partnerships with our neighborhood theater company to help with casting costumes and props and our local cable access station to film the performances. After meeting with staff at the local historical commission and historical society, we chose which stories to present. Michael researched and then crafted theatrical monologues which were vetted by local historians, subject experts, and our Mass Humanities Project Humanist. The result was five brilliantly engaging street performances. One vignette captured the impassioned local opposition to a long-planned highway project that would have led to more than a mile of six-lane elevated roadway being built right through Cambridgeport, displacing more than 1,200 families. The inner belt became the first highway project in American history to be defeated. A second brought to life an early 1920s Italian immigrant who had been recently transformed from a farmer into a proud builder of Model T's and Henry Ford's brand new Cambridge assembly plant. Ford's revolutionary mass production and $5 a day pay scale changed manufacturing in America forever. Next, we travel to 1888 and met the garrulous next-door neighbor of the reticent portrait painter Alvin Clark, who at age 40, without so much as a high school diploma, turned himself into one of the world's most respected astronomers and, along with his sons in a teeny factory in Cambridgeport, produced the world's premier refracting telescopes and objective lenses for the most important observatories in his era. Down the Charles, it became 1914, and visitors met Seamus Callahan, an immigrant Irish typesetter at Henry Houghton's world-famous Riverside Press, and also an enthusiastic sculler and members of the Riverside Boat Club, which trained its members to excel in both athletics and politics. Street. Hey, beat the belt. Beat the belt. You, do you know about the belt? No? Well, step right up and you can hear about it and then join our protest because... Oh, I'm sorry. Well, Mr. Clark and the boys have been working on this special piece of glass, this lens, for eight years now. Eight years on one piece of glass. That's what Mr. Forbes, my husband, tells me. Of course, these days, we're not just a book club. We've got a gymnastics team, uh, race walking, uh, prize fighting. Sometimes we challenge the other clubs to an old-fashioned uh, tug-of-war, just for a laugh. <laughs> Mr. Ford pay me a $5 every day. $5 every day. That's more than two times most men make in a factory anywhere. It seems that... Uh, 
Anna hadn't quite shared her entire story. I could see you're shocked. Even though she had showed Asa P photos of her handsome aristocratic family, Anna Van Hooten, gracious, worldly, lily-white Anna, how can I put this delicately, had a bit of darker blood running through her delicate veins. Our most controversial piece introduced Ed Healy, a glib 1893 local news hound, who told the unseemly story of one of Cambridge's most powerful nabobs. The magnate of Magazine Street, 73-year-old Asa P. Morse, brought low by his passionate pursuit of a lovely young thing. The 38-year-old Anna Van Hooten, after pledging his troth and a good percentage of his fortune, he discovered Van Hooten had neglected to share some pertinent facts about her race, and the result was one of the most scandalous trials of the day. Since each monologue was presented in a specific location that was tied to an actual event, we generated some buzz by placing funny, provocative signs at the sites a few days beforehand. Each site was also marked with colorful balloons and an interpretive poster that provided additional information. And we videotaped all of the performances for posterity. Uh, Mass Humanities is so excited about this project that they've asked us if it would be okay to post snatches of the video on their website. So we said yes, we're, we're really honored. With these dramatic vignettes, our personal maps, the historic reenactments, and, of course, with If This House Could Talk, we have tried to emphasize that in addition to documenting grand events, history also helps to explain and define our neighborhoods. All of us create history every day, and history can delight us. And as a neighborhood with Cambridgeport History Day, each year, we share that delight together at our central Dana Park, where many local organizations set up displays, musicians perform, walking tours originate, and a big potluck supper closes the day. Finally, an unexpected bonus that has emerged is that a strong core of neighbors is now working together on other important efforts, most notably our effort to clean up and revive the 1818 powder magazine on the shore of the Charles River. It's been enormously rewarding to see this little and very inexpensive idea flower over the past few years, and now to take root in a few other communities as well. History Day like this presentation is a result of the collaboration of many organizations and individuals. I'm extremely grateful to each of them. For links to articles that give how-tos about our project and those in Sacramento and Calgary, go to this website, um, which we just, which just mounted at the beginning, um, www.ifthishousecouldtalkwordpress.com. Also, the Cambridge Historical Society's website is a great resource. Gavin Clespies there and two neighborhood volunteers led the project this year as I was on sabbatical. I'm grateful to Gavin, Shelley, and Jay for this. If you have questions, please also feel welcome to contact me at kathzusi at gmail.com. We are eager for you to steal this idea and use your local talent 
to tailor it to your community. Okay. I will now introduce and become my Sacramento colleague, Marietta, uh, Mary Ellen Burns. I guess before I be become her, let me tell you about her, though. Um, Ms. Burns has managed major historic preservation, industrial archaeology, community and food history projects for museums, libraries, and educational institutions for more than 30 years, including the California State Railroad Museum, Sacramento History Museum, Ardenwood Historic Farm, the Sacramento Old City Association, Knight Foundry, and California State Library. A freelance researcher, writer, and editor, her work has appeared in magazines, books, websites, and films. She has a bachelor's degree in journalism from Sacramento State University and serves on the board of the Sacramento County Historical Society and Sacramento History Consortium. And again, she's not here today because... Um, her husband got really sick, and she's sick too. Okay. Inspired by articles I wrote for History News and the National Trust Preservation Forum, Mary Ellen Burns of Sacramento organized an If This House Could Talk event that ran there just this past month. Okay. Now I'm Mary Ellen. Thanks, Kathy, for the great lead-in. <laughs> I'd like to concentrate on what we in Sacramento did differently, give you an opportunity to engage in a hands-on activity, and provide resources to you to create a similar project in your own community. Before I could talk, mastodon mastodons walked here. Then the waters came, and under my alluvial hills were laid the same gold deposits that spurred the gold rush. John Souter placed a fort nearby, and the land surrounding me was graced with cow pastures, grazing land, and poor people seeking shelter from floods. Land speculators understood that as the Sacramento community grew, middle-class inhabitants would want the start to start building larger and larger houses here, far from the overcrowded conditions of downtown Sacramento, and far removed from the dirt and grime of the industry that filled the center." Some years ago, my husband Leo and I attended a conference with Andres Duani, architect and urban theorist, who said the average person won't walk more than five blocks before getting into their car to shop for groceries, drop by a cafe for coffee, visit the gym, or experience any of the essential joys that make our neighborhood livable places. That got us thinking. What could we do within a five-block walk of our urban home in the Poverty Ridge neighborhood of Sacramento? Poverty Ridge, so named because poor people once camped there during a flood, is nestled smack dab in the central city, a mostly residential area full of craftsman bungalows, depression area cottages, and post-60s apartments. The only people who seem to walk it are dog owners, Alzheimer patients who wander away from the residential facility next door, and lady power walkers from the DMV almost a mile away. So the infinite possibilities we discovered on our own forays surprised us. We can spend a quiet afternoon at an historic library, visit the mansion that author Joan Didion grew up in, buy antiques at a monthly market held under a busy freeway, 
Eat in the neighborhood dives and cutting-edge cafes. Drink at a gritty corner bar. Take a tour of the local newspaper. Visit the house Patty Hearst lived in when she was on the lam from the the Simbanese Liberation Army. Or jump on the light rail to any other place in the city. A hundred years ago, we might have met the captains of Sacramento industry, judges, and department store owners living amongst brewers, tanners, farmers, day laborers, and immigrants from all corners of the world. Across this grid of just five blocks by five blocks, there is a layer upon layer of history and an array of architectural treasures, flora and fauna, topographical anomalies, foodways, and uncharted political and cultural terrain for urban explorers like us to discover. The two of us made a decision to stop and smell the century-year-old roses in our neighborhood and write and illustrate our way through it block by block, story by story. I wrote a grant to the Sacramento Metropolitan Arts Commission and received funding to challenge our neighbors to map the neighborhood and uncover its historical, cultural, social, and political significance. Uh, The project was very successful. Neighbors and community organizations wanted to expand to Five Block Square. I do a lot of volunteer work for the Sacramento Public Library. I wanted to create a series of projects that engaged the community through history and story. We brainstormed a lot of different approaches, including If This House Could Talk, blatantly stolen from Cambridgeport, after a visit in 2009. What we did. I wrote grant applications hoping that one of the ideas would move forward. All of the grant proposals were funded. For the last year or so, I've been trying to do all of them. I'm crazy. Finding the team was easy. For the last 10 years, I've worked with Janice Kelly, Lawrence Fox, and Joy Gee on art, literacy, history, and design programs for schools, libraries, museums, and community centers. Janice Kelly has gone back to school to complete her her MA in public history. Larry is a high school art and technology teacher. And Joy is an accomplished illustrator and cartographer. The surprise was meeting Kelly Woodward, a neighbor who attended our first event, a tireless researcher who volunteered to help people with their house histories, and me, Jill of all trades. Our partners also just fell into place. They were our library, Neighborhood Association, and Local Preservation Society. Together, the team created posters, brochures, and other promotional materials that we Facebook and sent to the local media. We also walked door to door to talk to our neighbors. I contacted Kathy to ask if she minded if we took the idea and improvised a little. Of course, I said yes. We then held a storyboarding session at the McClatchy Library. Neighbors contributed to the plan using a method called storyboarding, a visual planning technique developed by Walt Disney that I use extensively to plan large projects. From that, we created a project plan that listed all the things we had to do, who's responsible, milestones, and deadline dates. How our project differed from Cambridgeport. We held a series of monthly workshops that, held throughout, that we held throughout the spring and summer. 
If we had to do it again, we'd have done one a week over six weeks. Our If This House Could Talk lasted a month from September 15th to October 15th. So actually, I guess their signs are still up. Uh, We had intended to have the signs up for about nine days, but people in the neighborhood wanted to add more elements to the project, and so we did, including partnering with the Sacramento Old City Association annual home tour on September 16th. Eight of the houses in the neighborhood were open for people to tour inside, including the Roan Didion house, a house that the author Joan Didion lived in for two years while a high school student. The tour also included a massive street fair with history and preservation vendors. Eleanor McClatchy, the local newspaper publisher who lived in the McClatchy Library as a child before it was deeded to the city in 1940, was played by our lead archivist, Amanda Graham. Unexpected art, artist studio tour. Our neighborhood has an inordinate amount of visual, literary, and performing artists. Their houses will be open actually tomorrow, October 6th, with signs, art demonstrations, and hands-on opportunities to write and create art. Their signs will go up for just one day and will be sold if someone wants to purchase them. Um, To publicize this event, these same artists painted rocks with um, their blog address, and um, they placed them randomly around the neighborhood. Uh, The the month-long activities end with the opening night of the Year of Magical Thinking, the play Joan Didion wrote about the death of her husband, John Griffin Dune. Leo and I bought out the house, 50 tickets, a gift to our sign writers, and will host a party at our house afterwards to celebrate the project and the community that it, it has created. Here's a brochure showing our six workshops. Again, there was one held each month. Uh, The first workshop is House Detective, where you learn how to research a house. Then A Day in the Life, a photographic tour of the neighborhood. Uh, Another neighbor um, helped lead this project. Our Stories, Personal Narratives, How to Tell Our Story. Going Beyond the Bare Bones, How to Flesh Out Stories of the People Who Lived in Our House or Neighborhood Using Census, Genealogical Records, Newspapers, and an Improvisational Theater Technique Using Sensory Clues. Um, Mary Ellen told me that they use costumes and they get the sign writers to be the person that they're writing about. Five Block Square, How to Map Your Neighborhood and Create a Visual Map. And then If This House Could Talk, they had two days of sign-making workshops with artists to guide residents through the process of making an artful sign. Um, Mary Ellen is posting, I mean, this is all on her blog address, which um, I'll give you later. To get the word out, we developed a new blog, it is if this house could talk wordpress.com and fiveblocksquare.com. Um, so Mary Ellen is using, so if you write out, out if this house could talk.wordpress.com, you'll get Mary Ellen's, you'll learn what they did in Sacramento. If you just have the letters, I T H C T.wordpress.com, 
you'll get a page that just tells you about resources. Would actually, it will actually bring you to the Sacramento links so you can learn about their project as well. Uh, we wrote a series of six press releases distributed at different times of the process. And we mounted a coordinated media effort with our partners so that each of us would promote the event in our newsletters, Facebook page, Twitter, and at other events. We also walked the neighborhood house by house, block by block. How we spent our time. Kelly and I scheduled research sessions at our local archives and library, researching individual houses for people who didn't have the time and we uncovered hundreds of stories about Poverty Ridge, Newton Booth, and the Alhambra Triangle neighborhoods. Our next project is to ask local writers and artists to write, illustrate stories for our blog. Janice and I wrote a series of how-to articles for the blog. I worked with the team to create replicable workshops with handouts, which we can provide to anyone who requests them at Mary Ellen underscore burns at mac.com. And I'll have this up here later if you want to write down her address, or else I'll post it to the blog. Total time uh, the four of us put into the project was about four hours per week, except workshop weeks when each of us added an additional three hours of time in the last month when we started creating signs and distributing them. Our results... Having artists involved in the process really kicked up the quality of our signs. We will have photos on our blog of the signs as they are being created and in place. Neighbors came together in ways that they never had before, sharing their lives and their stories, talking to each other on the street, going to the Library and History Center to research their house. Almost 1,500 people purchased tickets to go on the house tour, three times the previous year and more than the last three years combined. Hundreds of people stopped at our booth to talk about their own house and neighborhood. They brought photos and shared stories. They asked us to reproduce the event in their neighborhood or to create workshops for their association or local library branch. We expect a lot of the stories for our blog. We also participated in a radio podcast from the library, the Newton Booth Neighborhood Association wants to consider doing a podcast a month. Two more neighborhoods asked to participate next year. A single street near what we call the Fabulous 40s and the Curtis Park Neighborhood Association. They also hold an annual house and garden tour and want to add signs to their event to increase participation. The Sacramento Public Library asked the team to find funding to create a series of neighborhood history programs in each branch in the system. Concurrently, we're working on a potluck, recipes and remembrances of friends of the Del Paso Heights and North Sacramento Hagen Hagenwood libraries. Recipes and stories are submitted by anyone in the city living in the historic Rancho Del Paso Mexican land grant. The book will be published by I Street Press, the new publishing arm of the library. Newton Booth decided not to replicate If This House Could Talk next year, but to create a regular event that brings neighbors together. Next up, Murder, Mystery, and Mayhem, September 1st. I'm sorry, November 1st. The stories in our neighborhood ripped from the headlines from 1852 to the present, 
the team will continue to work with neighbors to create house histories and stories and place them on our blogs and Facebook pages. Our goal is to create this event each year in a different neighborhood in Sacramento. The Downtown Sacramento Partnership would like us to do this program or a similar program for the entire central city. Oops, I'm sorry. Lessons learned. Neighbors want to engage, get to know their neighbors. They are also the best source of ideas. Keep it simple. Six weeks, not six months. Sprinklers and big dogs are hell on signs. Find weatherproof signs. Go large or go home versus one thing at a time. We're glad we went large this year because we had a tremendous impact and unbelievable media support. The partners will continue to work with each other on events, but we recognize we had a team who has worked together for years as volunteers, and that most neighborhood associations handle just one thing at a time. It isn't about numbers. The goal is to engage community with stories and with history. We went into this thinking that all of us had a story to tell, but each house had hundreds of stories to tell. If all I did was uncover the stories of my five-block neighborhood, I wouldn't have enough years left in my life to share them all. Neighbors had an easier time when we asked them to share the story of their house and not the history of their house. They didn't feel confident enough as researchers or couldn't find the time. When we asked them to tell a story and used an icebreaker to introduce the concept of of how easy it is to tell a story, we got tremendous results. People couldn't stop talking. Since Mary Ellen isn't here, um, I suggest that we just do the first um, hand-on activity that she recommends. Um, This was the first activity at each of the Sacramento workshops. Okay, Um, turn to the person sitting next to you. Tell an anecdote or tidbit about your house. Uh, It can be a personal story or the story of someone who inhabited the house before you. You have only one minute. Please go. Okay, now switch and let the other person tell their story. See, it's hard to stop, isn't it? Okay, ding. Isn't it hard to stop once you get going? I mean, there really are, the houses are filled with so many stories. Um, So Mary Ellen had this fabulous handout that um, 
that didn't get here. But it's going to be on her website. So again, if you go to ifthishousecouldtalk.wordpress.com, you'll find her handout there, which will give you other um, activities that you could use in your community. Um, and also, you can always be in touch with um, Mary Ellen Burns, and remember the underscore here, at mac.com if you have questions about her materials. Um, and I think... Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, here we go. And now it's your turn to ask questions. And also, what I'm hoping for, and Mary Ellen as well, is that you have ideas for how to expand or improve this project. Or you might even talk about how it might work in your community. And, and, and I, think, um, it's, I think that the project is so simple. I mean, it's such a simple concept, but it really needs to be tailored in each community to your own local history and the local talent that you have. Like, who are you going to involve? Who would be your partners? Um, and how are you going to engage the community to encourage their participation? How did you get the word out to the community about the project? Did you use press releases, social media, Facebook, Twitter? Um, how did people learn about it? Okay, the question is, was, um, how did we get the word out to the community? Um, we used press releases. We have a neighborhood blog that, that um, or I'm sorry, a neighborhood listserv that goes to 450 people. Um, I was going to, back to our newspaper. Cambridge is, we're an unusual community. We have one newspaper that publishes about eight stories each week. You know, it's, there's hardly any news in our newspaper. So, but, but they did publish notices in their community notes section, but that's all they would do. But um, the best advertisements for the project were actually our teaser signs. And I have an example of one um, back there. Sorry, this project is amazingly. Uh, this project is amazingly low tech. I mean, I think that's why people respond to it. Um, uh, the first teaser signs were on Henrietta Davis's old campaign posters, <laughs> <laughs> and the reason and the reason we used them were, was because they were free. And because they're durable, because when people are running for an office, they want their posters up for what, a month, two months, right, as they're preparing for their camp, you know, campaign um, before the election. And they were big, so we just lopped off the top. And these teaser signs were planted at busy thoroughfares in the neighborhood, like eight of them, two weeks before the event. People loved these. And uh, I think the thing that people love, I think, most about the project is that it's ephemeral. Because all of a sudden, these, like, these teaser signs just pop up like Easter eggs one morning. And then people walk by them, and they think, wow. And then you go to this insert here, and it says, what happened in your neighborhood 220 or 200 years ago? For nine days, 
da 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 whatever those days are, residents and businesses tell, will post signs in front of their properties telling interesting tidbits from their recent or historic past. To participate, contact actually me. I put my email there and my phone number. Because I think you really need to have, this is a project that is all about personal connection. So you can have it go to um, historical society email or something. But I, I think it's actually better if it's more personal because people want to connect and they want to connect with a person and not an, or, an organization. I don't know. I mean, you can think about it. If this house could talk as part of Cambridgeport History Day, for more information, go to the Cambridge Historical Society website where all the information about the project was noted. So this was, I think, actually our, the, the thing that really got people excited about the project because they could see visually um, what, what it is that we wanted. And the best ones of these um, were in a personal voice. And actually, the best ones of these were not as long as this. There's a picture of one that PICA, which is this funky uh, fraternity, MIT fraternity that's in a house in our neighborhood did, and it was two lines. The best signs are really four to five lines max. This is, we, this got a little carried away. Yeah. Oh, no, you know what? I started, our event is always the last weekend in September the 1st at the very beginning of October. And um, starting in August, I started putting things in the newspaper. And But the thing is, with the teasers, I'd been talking to, the teaser signs, I'd been talking to, you know, my colleagues at the Historical Society and the Historical Commission and history professors and writers in the neighborhood, and we had worked on the teasers and friends in the neighborhood that had I knew could come up with interesting stories. They started working and thinking about the teasers months in advance. So, I mean, there's a lot of groundwork that you have to do for this project for it to take off, to be successful. It looks so easy, and that's the thing that's a little misleading. This year, because I'm on sabbatical, I was taking a little break, because I'm working on the Powder Magazine project. I'm trying to revitalize this derelict park along the Charles River. And so I've been putting my energy mostly there this year. Um, three others led the project. And I think they thought that it looked so easy that people would just do it. And um, though there were 85 signs this year, you know, usually once uh, someone has written a sign they'll repost their sign. But there weren't as many new signs. If you want new signs, you really need to get out and talk to people. Like the second year, we wanted um, larger socioeconomic um, participation. So I talked to tenant council groups at the uh, public housing projects. And it was because of that that I was able to get more signs. I also would like, uh, it was interesting, I tried to go to the Korean grocer. And I tried to... um, encourage him to participate. And, um, but I don't go to that. You know, I don't shop there. It's not my neighborhood grocer. So he was just dumbfounded. Like, what did I want? You know, he wasn't going to have a thing to do with this project. If you want signs from people you don't know, you need people that know them to talk to them about the project. And the other thing is, you've got to give them a graphic. I think you all have the guidelines. Um, this year... The group created a, a different set of guidelines without pictures. And that was a real problem because people didn't get what it is that you wanted them to produce. So you need to provide a visual. Like when I would go to businesses, 
and uh, I would we would go door to door to the biotechs and in the community and in businesses. You have to have pictures to show them what you want. Otherwise, they'll have no idea what you're talking about. Um, we also had in 2011 some MIT students did some tweeting about the project. Um, over the last couple of years, I've been talking about if this house could talk to an urban planning group at MIT. And um, one of those students is going to help me set up a Facebook page, which we haven't done yet. Um, but we need to be doing more tweeting. We need to be doing more Facebook. Um, there's a lot of social media stuff we could be doing that we haven't done yet. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, well, fortunately for us, um, um, a powerful city councilor who was now our mayor was the co-chair of the Cambridgeport History Project Committee. So all of this, you know, was done. Mary, uh, Henrietta Davis has influence. We, our meetings took place at City Hall. Um, and because of Henrietta Davis's involvement, you know, the head of the Arts Council was there, the assistant director of the Historical Commission, the head of the Historical Society, um, someone from community planning, like all the movers and shakers want to be there because they want to know Henrietta. They want to be working with Henrietta. So, um, and also it's only nine days. The signs are only up nine days. So they come down. So we didn't have any problems because we were talking to and involving the right people. Yeah. Other questions? Yeah. Um, on the guidelines, it tells people how to contact the Historical Commission. And Kit Rollins there is definitely, I mean, um, a major partner as well as the Historical Society. So usually each year, it's only about eight people that will actually, but they'll go. She makes them learn to fish. It's very interesting. She won't provide them with the information. She makes them come in and she teaches them how to research their house history, which is actually wonderful. She makes that time to do so. Um, I mean, sometimes she has mercy and, um, and, and will help someone over the phone, but usually she'll make them come in. But there are, at least in our community, amazing resources online. So I, I think the Cambridge Historical Commission has been thrilled because all these people become invested in their house in a way they never have before. And once people learn about their building, often they become you know, more interested in preserving their building or caring for it, right, and preserving the community's history. Um, so, yeah, and, and again, the Historical Society played a major role too because um, I would provide content. They would put it on their web um, website, and I felt it was very important that everything, 
we wanted to connect to neighborhood history. So it was important for it to go through the Cambridge Historical Society and to have them be a key partner in the project. And then that, that map that you have showing where the signs are with all the little dots, again, that looks so simple, but that takes Gavin several days to produce. Um, and I'm very grateful to him for doing that. Does that answer your question? Okay. Yes. The Historical Society um, is collecting images all the time, which is great, in the Historical Commission. Um, and but it's, it's interesting, in Cambridge, um, one of the things that didn't work for us but did work in Sacramento, in Cambridge, almost everyone... Cambridge is in an unusual place because a lot of people have a lot of degrees. And so Kit and I offered to do this sign-writing workshop so Kit prepared all these amazing materials, and we devoted, you know, blocked out three hours. Nobody came to our workshop because I think everybody feels they're so they're so smart, and uh, and people know how to do historical research, and also there's so many web-based res um, resources online. Um, but I think one thing next year that I'm going to encourage, like I mean, for example. My neighbor, David Torrey, who did this sign, which includes, you know, copies of historic photographs, copies of Sanborn fire maps, you know, photographs of his house and how it changed. You know, these are available online in Cambridge, which is quite extraordinary. Um, and maybe it's these things are available in your communities, too. But basically, many, many, many people put images on their sign. But next, next year, we're going to encourage... People to use Google more because as Michael and I were working on this presentation, um, we were pulling all these images off the web and they really enhanced the signs. And with the oral history component of the project that we want to develop, it's really important to have a voice. And so we want to include the image of the person that's telling the story with those stories that are sort of extracted from oral history interviews. Yes. Right. And so have you talked about that? Have you done anything to try to kind of balance that sound? Um, you know, how, how do you make space for the hearts or the Right. So how, how do we make space for the hard stories as well as the warm and fuzzy stories? Um, if I was tech-savvy enough, I would go back to another slide, but I don't think I can... But from the oral histories, you often learn some of the stories that are hard. And our most controversial sign and all of the signs that we've posted um, was posted in 2010. It was from an oral history with Bill Davis. And he talked about how at the end of World War II, there were effigies of Mussolini 
Hitler and the Japanese emperor hung and burned in the neighborhood. And I made a sign for that. And I was doing a gazillion different things. And like one, the one rule with if this house could talk is that you have to ask for permit. You can only post a sign in front of your building unless you get permission from the building owner. Because um, otherwise it could be crazy, right? Um, so anyway, in my, in my haste, in haste, the morning of if this house could talk, I just put up this sign on someone's fence about the burning of the effigies. And I got this nasty email saying, I can't believe you did this. You know, I have a small child. And I talked to the, and she said, and even the grammar was wrong. And um, anyway, I talked to her later, and she actually became a champion of the project. But I did move the sign, to, and I attached it to a stop sign instead, instead of her fence post. But um, the grammar wasn't wrong. I took my, <laughs> uh, um, but, but, I, but we talked about it and talked about the importance of sharing some of the ugly history because it's part of the story too. And again, also, it's really from the oral histories that you get those ugly stories. Like, um, again, it was Bill Davis that told about Greasy Village and, it, and somebody else that my, uh, my neighbor, Peter Higginson, talked to, told about the gangs at Greasy Village. Like, apparently, they were the toughest gangs in town. And they were, like, shooting things. You know, they were shooting guns from the roofs. And um, I went to mission when I, as I was working on this talk and said, Kit, do you have any pictures of the people and the gangs in Greasy Village? And she said, no, Kathy, I didn't even know about the gangs in Greasy Village. So, you know, some of, I feel like through the oral history component of the project, which we want to expand, we're going to learn more of those little ugly bits. But I will also tell you, um, there was a sign in front of, Woodrow Wilson uh, Apartments, which are is a high-rise, um, it's public housing for the elderly and disabled. And um, that building is just had, thanks to stimulus, federal stimulus dollars, it just got, um, in large part, a 30 million, they just did $30 million worth of energy retrofitting to that building. $30 million. Think of what that could pay for. And uh, anyway, so I wrote a sign with not, without any editorial comments, but just letting people know. I mean, everyone's excited that they're renovating Woodrow Wilson apartments. Of course, they need to be nice. But originally, the whole complex was built like for $7 million. Now they're putting $30 million in, in, into it. You know, so I just was trying to bring attention to, there was no editorializing, but to something I thought was a little weird, right? Yeah. But it often, it's interesting when people are writing signs, often the other thing that's interesting is people often will not write about themselves. You know, the neighborhood is filled with interesting people, but almost never do they write about themselves. They'll generally write about someone that lived in the house previous to them, an interesting character or an interesting event. Do you have ideas for...
Right. Well, actually, did you, were you here when I was doing the videos? Because actually, I mean, the inner belt protester was sort of, uh, that, was a, that was a battle that took place in the neighborhood for 20 years. And the Asa you know, Morse versus Anna Van Houten controversy, I mean, that was, that was really ugly, like major scandal that we were able to bring attention to. I mean, I think Michael Schaefer's, um, those vignettes were brilliant. I mean, I can say them because Michael did them. Um, but people loved them. And they were able to talk about local stories, but put them within the context of what was going on, you know, within a much larger context. So we were able to do some really interesting things with them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because our neighborhood has been, um, during the last 20 years, there's been dramatic gentrification. And I think one of the other sort of challenges with this project is, you know, the first year we were looking at the map. Do you guys have the, you have the map showing where the signs are, right? Well, if you look at the map, what we realized is that, Sue, can I just borrow that for a sec? Yeah. Most of the um, participants... We're in this quarter, which were the single-family homes. Very interesting, highly educated single-family people. Uh, uh, homeowners were the ones that were proud of their houses, so they were participating. Um, which is why I've, I tried to make the effort um, to involve others at the different public housing complexes. And I think one of the challenges, and I welcome your ideas, is, again, how do we get these college students and others without voice to become part of the project and to embrace the project. Um, and so I haven't quite figured that out yet. I'd love your ideas. Um, but I, so I, I, I don't think there was one guy that was renovating his house, a Greek revival house, the one that was under construction that I showed you. And he got so excited about this project that he started a blog. There's a blog about his house and the renovation. And then he went through... Um, census records and he did all this history of his street, Cottage Street and then he started this sort of competition there were like 14 houses on Cottage Street that participated in If This House Could Talk because he was so excited so I mean it sort of, sort of led to uh, some street pride so I guess that did follow from the project but I feel most importantly now the neighborhood is sort of cohered and we're like taking all this energy and we're going to get that derelict park at Magazine Beach, up and running again. I mean, there's no reason it should look so terrible. And we've gotten funding from the city and the state now. We're cleaning it up. It's going to become a nice park. So I feel like that is going to happen, and it, it would not have happened before this project. Yes? Okay, so the question is, what sort of formal feedback do we have about the project? Well, with the pop-up performances, because it was a mass humanities-funded project, um, we did have evaluations, and people, um, people filled them out, and they gave them to me, and um, they loved it. The, the pop-up performances were amazing, and they were ex exceptionally well-received. Um, 
uh, with If This House Could Talk, I guess you just sort of feel it in the air. It was amazing. I guess the most powerful thing is when I was taking down the curated signs in 2009, people would stop me all over the neighborhood and tell me how much they loved the project. I mean, actually, all year long, I hear about how people love the project and are looking forward to it, and they'll say, I want to participate next year. So there isn't a formal mechanism. I guess you, you could measure it by participation. The first year, we had 70 signs. The second, we had like 110. The third, 120, um, which like leads you to another quandary, which is, so should you really be doing this every year? Or is this like something you should do every five years? Another thing people say is, well, why are you doing it in Cambridgeport? Does it have the most interesting history? And the answer is no. It's because I'm there. That's where I live and I'm willing to dedicate the time and because the head of the Historical Society lives there and um, there are other members of the community that are excited about the project. This project could be done almost anywhere where you've got people willing to volunteer hundreds of hours that have some professional sort of expertise in history, have worked with volunteers, can project direct, and where there is sort of dense building stock. Um, And, uh, you know, there have been thoughts that it would be a great project to do in New Orleans. You know, I just think it could happen in many, many, many different communities. Um, yeah, so one, one of the questions is, again, how to, how to make it... Like in Calgary, they had 500 participants this past summer in this project. And there, there they were able to do that because it's um, a state... They have state-funded historic preservation organizations. So they already had organizing groups to enlist volunteers to participate in the project. Yeah. Does that help? Yeah. Do you have other ideas for how to evaluate the project? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right. So it seems like, you know, in, the neighbor, in your neighborhood, you have a lot of things going for you. What if you don't have all of those things going for you? you know, okay. And what community are you from? I should have given you this microphone. What community are you from? Or what, where are you from? I'm from Salt Lake City. Oh, from Salt Lake City. Okay. So the question was, so what if you want to do this in a neighborhood without all the resources that we have in Cambridge and maybe where people don't have the education to know how to research the history of their community. And Okay, because there are language, this is being recorded, so I'm just, because there are language barriers and lots of other things. I think you would have to develop personal connections. I mean, you'd have to be working maybe through the churches or through an organization but there has to be trust. People will only participate if people trust you. And so you've you got to work with organizations 
that the people in the community relate to and work with. Because, and then maybe you should need to have some workshops. And maybe, like Mary Ellen, it's interesting because it sounds like they provided more resources. I mean, they, they had two different workshops. They had many workshops to teach people how to, to do sign research. But, um, and they even did research for people. But maybe you'd have to help some with the, res- the research. But I think most importantly, you've got to figure out where to connect uh, with those people. Because if you're a stranger, they're not going to work with you. Okay, any last questions? Yes. I would just say, in regard to that problem, too, is maybe what you'd want to do is emphasize the history less and the story more. I mean, people get intimidated by doing historical research, but everybody's got a story about their house, like they said in Sacramento, an anecdotal story of something that makes them feel good that happened in their house or something that happened one day. And if you tell people that that's okay instead of having to research who lived there two decades ago and what job they had, Right. And actually, I, I think the best signs, I feel like um, 2009, I, I feel like I like the signs the best in 2009 in Cambridge, because that's when, um, then you, then that's when you ended up with the one-liners, and I mean, you need some funny signs. I mean, I feel like some of the signs have gotten a little too weighty about, like, when the house was built, and when they added this addition, and when it was renovated, and when they did the energy retrofitting. And it's really the stories and the characters and the life in the house that most of us connect to. And another part of this project that's really delightful is people will read your sign and then they'll tell you more about the people that lived in your house. Or um, one friend that did a, did a, lived in a house and did a sign ended up having a dinner party with all the past inhabitants of her house as a result of this project because she met them through the project. And she learned all these things that she never knew. Another guy, uh, David Torrey, this guy, he writes about how his house was moved down the street. And later I was talking to this lady in the park who said, I remember watching that house go move down the street. So I put her in touch with David. So, you know, so you're making all these connections because of the project. So I think that's a great idea to focus on the story rather, on, rather than the, the, the dates necessarily if, um, if people aren't used to doing historical research. I think we're out of time. But thank you so much for coming. Please feel welcome to look at the exhibits. Feel welcome to contact me if you need help. And I, I hope you'll consider stealing this idea because it does, it's amazing what it does. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah.